You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. Friends, 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 please take your seats. I'm going to sit down in a minute as well, but I wanted to welcome you very warmly to this dinner debate uh, on reaching the last mile. So I'm Shada Islam, I'm Director for Europe and Geopolitics at Friends of Europe, and really uh, surrounded here by my colleagues from Friends of Europe, Get Kami, Natalie Führer, Sandra, Sarah, um, so really, thank you all for being here. Just, just a word before we start this discussion, this dinner discussion. So uh, as some of you know, I was born in Pakistan. And one of the things that really impressed me when I lived there was the, the power and the force of the people living in the most remote areas of Pakistan. That's the last mile. Uh, the bottom of the pyramid, the people who live in isolated areas. And this is something that we at Friends of Europe are also very interested in. We talk a lot about middle-income countries, about the decline in the number of extremely poor people, and all of that is absolutely brilliant. And I think that is uh, a kind of testimony to the way the world has implemented the MDGs and now the SDGs. But there are still there are still people at the bottom of the pyramid, people that we need to empower, people that we need to reach, but also enterprises and places, and I have to say, women and girls that we need to reach in those remote areas. Because I can tell you from my own personal experience, and I'm sure you bring your experiences to this discussion, these are wonderful people. They Once empowered, they are really solid contributors to the national economy and to the global growth that we all want. So what are the rules of the game? So you've, had, you've spent the day, I'm assuming, at the EDDs, and there's been a lot of discussion, and I have to say some very exciting debates. Today we eat and we talk, and we contribute as much as we can to this discussion. The rules of the game are that we have four impulse speakers, so Kickstarters, and let me name them for you. Nauko Oeda, from Deputy Director at the OECD Development Center, Madame Oeda. There you are. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, Lee Yong, second time around, around that. So we're doing something right from UNIDO, Director General of UNIDO. So we're doing something right. Uh, Lee Yong has come back to a dinner debate uh, at Friends of Europe. And uh, Beatrice Perez from Coca-Cola, Senior Vice President. And one of the things that has impressed me is how uh, cold drinks <laughs> reach the remotest parts of the world. And if we can do it for cold drinks, we can do it for vaccine, vaccines and other things as well. And we're waiting for Stefano uh, Manservisi, DG Defco, who will be arriving here, but he's very ably represented by Felix at the moment. So everything that you say is on the record. We will have an event report uh, written by my friend Sebastian, and there will be recommendations in it. So if you could be very sort of to the point in terms of recommendations. Uh, be short and snappy, and everyone comes in. If you want to come in, and I hope you do, just put your hand up and I'll catch your... Uh, catch my eye and I'll give you the floor. Um, and you know, just short and snappy, everyone comes in and we do, we eat and we talk at the same time. So thank you again very much for being here. And now I'm going to shut up and I'm going to give the floor to Madame Weda. Thank you very much. Uh, it's very nice to be here. It's my first time in and I'm honored to be invited to this dinner. Uh, I'm a deputy director of the OECD Development Center. Uh, the Development Center uh, 
uh, uh, provides a plat policy platform and policy analysis uh, for uh, emerging economies in developing countries. And then also a half of our members uh, uh, are from the OECD countries. And we uh, learn from each other. We do the peer learning. Now, in terms of um, uh, what is the last mile uh, for uh, reaching, uh, achieving the SDGs, uh, of course, uh, youth and gender uh, comes to my mind. And then uh, one, uh, a quarter of the, uh, roughly a quarter of world population uh, is youth. And uh, about 90% uh, lives in uh, developing countries. And then what about it? Um, uh, are they having um, uh, uh, good potential? Uh, are they incorporated in the labor market? Uh, we have done the, uh, studies uh, in uh, developing countries in Asia, Africa, uh, Latin America, and we found that um, there is a skill gap. Um, and then uh, even though, even when people are educated, still they are not uh, incorporated, integrated into the formal market. And therefore, uh, there is a need for um, the, like a TVET, a need for really uh, uh, bridging the gap between the labor market and the youth. And also, tried, we need to, to really um, to avoid making the youth uh, uh, disenchanted uh, from the government, especially in these Latin American countries. Uh, it's not only youth, but the people are getting, uh, getting, more, uh, getting less trust uh, to their own government, uh, partly because of the lack of uh, quality of uh, social services, uh, public services. And therefore, that is becoming an issue. And uh, if that youth would be become increasingly in, uh, disenchanted uh, from the countries, and then that would be uh, leading to the instability. So that can that, and therefore, uh, uh, I would recommend that you know we need to tackle this uh, youth inclusion and also make sure that the policies that the government should take would be multidimensional. So that because some policies would compete with each other, um, so it has to be multidimensional. Uh, that's for youth. And as for agenda, uh, um, we have a lot of activities within the OECD. However, what we Development Center does focus is uh, the social um, uh, institutions uh, gender index. And that is to, to really uh, address the core uh, cause of the gender discrimination. You know, what is the social norms? Do they have the land rights? Do they have inheritance? Do they have some bias? Um, do they have uh, uh, physical integrity? Do they, uh, uh, do they receive uh, domestic violence? Uh, do they have to do uh, more house chores? Uh, because there is a social norm that women have, are supposed to do more housework. And that would really uh, disadvantage them to spend more time in the working environment. And that uh, inhibits them to proceed progress into the labor market. And therefore, increasingly, a greater number of women are highly educated these days, and yet they are not necessarily advancing in their economic opportunities. It is, um, uh, it is uh, one of the main reasons is because women are really forced to do, because of the social norms as well, forced to, uh, they, they feel like they're obliged to do the more house chores. Uh, and then inequalities, imbalance of these house chores is greater, of course, greater in the developing countries than in developed countries. So that's the, uh, so my recommendation to the agenda is, of course, it's important to have a policy uh, intervention to, to many gender initiatives, but at the same time, don't forget to address this root cause of this gender, you know, social norms. 
and uh, we provide the indicators which would uh, help monitoring uh, this pro problem. Now, I mentioned about this youth and then gender, which is really uh, the, uh, the, the people who, need, who should not be left behind. And then um, I would not challenge you to, 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 I would not challenge only our first, uh, uh, first statement that we should focus on really the most you know, uh, neglected uh, people. But at the same time, I would, uh, I would like to just raise the point that uh, when we tackle with this SDG, we would go beyond the GDP per capita. If we look at the G GDP capita per capita, and then we can say many countries probably look okay, like many Latin American countries have you know, gone you know, up the ladder. But what I can see recently is that increasing number of countries uh, in Latin America, as well as countries in um, uh, Africa, like South Africa, you know, they, are, they have reached certain level of uh, GDP per capita, but at the same time, uh, their inequalities, uh, as well as uh, their um, uh, well-being indicators, so-called, you know, uh, addressing to the SDGs more than GDP per capita, uh, so, again, social inclusion, uh, whether they have a decent work-life balance, uh, or whether they are satisfied with their life. Uh, you know, if you see those indicators, if you see how they are provided the public services, and they are not well off, and therefore we should not forget those people and then once you know countries will go up the ladder, income ladder, and they are kind of they automatically lose uh, the support from international you know financial institutions. But that we should not forget, uh, because every country has a different stage in development, and we should not just cut, you know, abruptly. You know, uh, we should really uh, and this. Therefore, I really liked your title that we should be innovative in thinking because we have to rethink. Uh, this innovatively, uh, this international cooperation more than the traditional ODA. So that was my. Can I just ask you a very quick follow up, uh, Ms. Weda? In your OECD, DAC, you know, DAC, uh, is the last mile being given enough attention, do you think? Is the last mile, is the bottom of the pyramid getting the attention, or is it just the middle income countries and countries that are sort of, you know, showing progress in terms of reaching certain goals? Now, uh, I, I represent the uh, uh, Development Center, and then we are a sister organization to the DAC. Uh, now, uh, in that, you know, we are, as a development cluster, we actually, we pay a lot of attention to uh, the, the, these developed countries, not only that middle-income countries, because the need is, of course, acute there. And therefore, like, we look into, like, for example, like a DAC, look into, um, to to uh, island countries who really need, you know, like island fragile countries really need uh, the special financing. You know, they are affected by the climate change and they do need special care. And therefore, we do look into that. And therefore, you know, we are, we, we, we are not, you know, this discussion even like when we discuss about the middle income countries, it's not about shifting uh, the support from the low-income countries to the middle-income countries, that should not be the way. Because that the low-income countries and fragile states need to be really addressed. And we should not really uh, minimize that. But uh, we, at the same time, we should not forget that there is a different kinds of vulnerability. So that's, yeah, that's the point.
I guess it's a, it's a juggling act in how you define your uh, parameters of your aid programs and your assistance uh, programs. Leong, from the UNIDO uh, point of view, reaching out to the last mile, looking after the women and girls especially, but also, as uh, Ms. Weda has said, the young people who feel disenfranchised because they're far from the, let's say, the, the metropolis. Um, what, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, <clears throat> thank you very much. Uh, uh, I really appreciate uh, the invitation. Uh, second time I joined this uh, uh, discussion. Uh, uh, one issue I really would like to put forward to all of you uh, that uh, we all know the Industrial Revolution and uh, first Industrial and second, third, now fourth Industrial Revolution. And, uh, but now I really would like to emphasize that uh, it is now the turn of Africa. But intercession is one of the main objectives of Africa agenda 50 years. Start from the, uh, uh, the uh, agenda 2063. The 50 years of transformation is really based on the uh, uh, industrialization and other transformation of that. But uh, uh, 36 countries now we calculated, adopted uh, industrialization uh, policies, industrial policies, and uh, it's really in line with the regional uh, transformation plan. At the same time, it's uh, cl uh, closely related to the SDG Goal 9, uh, inclusive and sustainable industrialization, infrastructure innovation. So, why I would like to mention that, because uh, I really would like to point out one of the country in Africa, Ethiopia, are leading the industrialization path uh, uh, thanks to its growth and the transformation plan, first and second. Now, uh, IMF gave us uh, a kind of comment. Uh, I read it, the poverty rate has fallen from uh, 44% in 2000 to 23.45% in 2015 and 2016. Uh, the IMF also said strategic orientation of industrialization policy, a focus on labor-intensive light manufacturing, such as uh, leather, apparel, textiles, uh, agro-processing, and electricity, capitalizes on Ethiopia competitive advantage. This is a budget uh, promotion of the industrial parks, a circular economy, and many of those uh, kind of programs conducted in the country. Uh, I believe IMF actually gave a uh, very objective conclusion on that because country move ahead with uh, poverty reduction with 100 million people uh, in the country. We still remember 38 years ago, the famine uh, scenes, but now the country is really in the other side of the issue, move towards uh, economic development. So uh, why I mention this? Because I concerned more country in the continent, uh, which that, uh, in which the majority of the LDC located in this continent. But, uh, of course, happy thing is that they all focus on the industrialization, but how to support them? You need to create one kind of program. We call the Program for Country Partnership. We work together with the government, 
and the development institution, World Bank, African Development Bank, and the private sector develop the industrial sector strategy moving ahead. Like Ethiopia, three pillars, uh, food processing, leather, textile. And now they would like to expand it to chemistry, uh, pharmaceutical, and the light manufacturing. Because of why I mentioned this, uh, because quite a number of countries would like to adapt to this kind of situation. That is our PCP program. We select Ethiopia, Senegal, two countries as a piloting. Now we add Morocco on the list, and maybe two or three countries like Rwanda or Cote d'Ivoire will be on the list to implement industrial development strategy but because it's really meaningful. Uh, when we talk about the last mile or uh, one mile far away connected to the job creation, job creation, how to create a job. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, we create 100 jobs, 200 jobs, good but not good enough. Compared with 100 million population, we should have a larger scale of the job created. I visit industrial park in Leather Park and I saw the uh, companies hide 1,300 people. And the big majority, more than 70% are women, young lady, work on the uh, industrial park. And how many such a kind of parks in the country? Hundreds of industrial parks. So this is why I mentioned that I really would like to invite support to this PCP program to the country, especially in Africa. Uh, I learned one information, one data uh, to share with you. New industrial revolution, industry 4.0, very dynamic. For advanced country, don't worry. For emerging market economy, they adapt to the new situation. For least developed countries, industry actually at zero, industry at 7%, 5%. And if they are not being taken care of by international community, next 30, 40 years, the working age population uh, in Africa will be 300, 500 million, and big majority will be uh, women and, uh, and young people. So that is uh, our challenge. So uh, I believe that uh, uh, something happened in Asia, uh, tigers, dragons move ahead, and something happened in North America, something happened in Europe will be happening in Africa. This is uh, what uh, we are doing, and also we really would like to see the momentum created by the uh, SDG uh, and also uh, bilaterally, uh, FOCAC in China, TICAD in Japan, uh, India, Africa, the Marshall Plan for Africa in Germany, and the international organizations, World Bank, continues to support. Uh, African development, EIB now joined the queue, uh, made a contribution to this process. So I think with this kind of momentum created, we will eliminate the one mile distance and uh, to create more jobs for women, for young people. 
in this continent and that will lead uh, prosperity, big potential, peace, and stability, and uh, reduce the migration, uh, etc. Those uh, big challenge of the international community. Thank you very much. I really would like to invite some questions, uh, comments on this point. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Li Yong, and thank you for being upbeat on it. And you are absolutely right. Uh, this is a rather special moment where everybody seems to be converging uh, on, on certain issues that have to do with core development challenges that we are facing, whether it's Africa, whether it's South Asia, whether it's Latin America. And it's, it's quite interesting, actually, what you've said is turning Ethiopia around. And that story, I think, needs to be sort of uh, disseminated and that narrative of change and transformation needs to be told. And I think we will have comments, I hope, from all the other banks around the table, but also the other experts on uh, the industrialization uh, uh, you know, plan strategy that UNIDO is implementing. So thank you very much for that. Now, I think it's always very, very important that we bring in the private sector into this discussion. It's all very well to be uh, institutions, all very well, well to be banks, uh, civil society organizations. I've got one sitting next to me. Uh, so it's very important to do that. But I think, you know, if we are going to implement successfully, right, the SDG agenda, we cannot do it alone. We need the private sector on board, and at least finally that question is on our table. So we're really, really honored and grateful to have Beatrice with us. And so Beatrice, let's have your point of view. Thank you. Well, I'm honored to be here, and so it's, it's great to have companies invited to the table, as well as I think we all know we also have to invite the community to the table as well. So you started with a question as to if Coca-Cola is everywhere, then why can't we get certain resources to that last mile? And that's actually the same question that Melinda Gates posed to us many years ago. And she looked at our business and she said, Coke operates in over 200 countries. Everywhere I go, I see Coca-Cola. Everyone has access to it. We've been in Africa for over 90 years. We have 70,000 jobs there. And we've invested, you know, well, we're about to invest over $17 billion in the next decade. And it was interesting because when she posed that question, she was really looking at logistics in our system. How can we get vaccines to that last mile using Coca-Cola's skill and trucks and know-how? And what we found when we started this program, we, we piloted first in Tanzania with the Global Fund and we titled it Project Last Mile and other partners got involved. And we did start with trying to think about how do we utilize our system to get the vaccines out there. And what we learned through the first pilot was as we've evolved to this project to get to 10 countries by 2020, is that what was actually more impactful and powerful was the skills and the training. It was less about putting the vaccines on the trucks. It was working with the ministries of health and all the local governments and the communities to ensure that there was refrigeration at the local point of distribution so they could be stored properly. So they could actually have people come in and get vaccinated, probably the education. But then what happens when a refrigerator breaks down that's holding the vaccines? Someone isn't just next door to come in and fix it. So using our expertise in our business to have our people training the individuals operating these facilities, the medical development centers or the health centers where people would come for the vaccines, was really important. So that way the program could actually be sustainable without always having to have Coca-Cola right there on site and without always having to use our trucks. It was teaching the logistics capability and the skills and bringing the expertise as well as other partners to drive scale. 
because we're very proud of the work we've done and we know we have a goal to get to 10 countries by 2020, but that's not enough. And we know we have to do more. And so I would also like to build in a little bit, I think the issues were well presented here by OECD and as well as by UNIDO. And I think it's important for us to look at what problems we're trying to solve and to get very clear. And so the other key lesson we had is when we were looking at water as one of the core pillars that Coca-Cola works on, it was important for us to look at what was the state of the African continent and what was happening. And I'm sure you all know the facts. Less than one-third of Africans have access to clean, safe drinking water. Over two-thirds lack access to sanitation. And so how do we make sure that when we go into the community, we're not just putting a standard water program in place? Because maybe actually in Ghana there's plenty of water, but the water's not clean. But in other areas in South Africa, maybe there's a drought or in Cape Town. So how do you ensure that you're actually really on the ground and understanding the local issue and then sitting with the community first to ensure that when you come in as a private sector partner, that you're working within what's aligned with the government as well as with the people who live and breathe in that community. And so I think as I would challenge us to think about the conversation here today as I turn it back is, do we really understand the local issues beyond the last mile that we're trying to solve? And do we have all the right people sitting at the table? Because I actually believe that getting the financing could actually be the easier part, and I know that might sound crazy, but actually putting the right tools in place and measuring and tracking to get the proper outcomes, I think is probably one of the bigger challenges we would all face together. So thank you for letting me be here today. Thank you very much, Beatrice. I just wanted to follow up. So if you were to say a, a, a big success story, you know, Leong talked about Ethiopia. What would you point to as, a, as something that you're really proud of and you thought, yes, we've done it here? Well, I'd, say I'd point to some of the programs that we've done around 5 by 20 or even Replenish Africa initiative. So I'll, I'll just maybe give two. So with our work around Replenish, Replenish Africa initiative, we set out originally to bring water to 3 million Africans. And we found that we were able to work with the Global um, Environment Technology Fund to very quickly drive scale and with the governments. So we got to the three million very fast. And so we quickly, we didn't stop and say, okay, we're done, we've met the goal. We then expanded the goal to get to six million. What I'm proud of though, is that we've brought in third party verifiers, so accounting firms, so ENY and PwC. They actually assure our data. So we know that actually, if the program for some reason stops, the community will still be able to run it because they have those expertise and that it's not a quick solution that goes away once we leave. It stays and it's long lasting. And same kind of practice around our empowering women. So I know women has been quite a topic here today. We know that women are uniquely touched by some of the issues that we're talking about. You know, they're, they're at a significant disadvantage when we think about water access and they're the ones who are actually having to go and fetch the water and then they're not in school because of it and, and you all know the story goes on. When we set out to empower five million women by 2020, you know, believe it or not, we actually did not exactly know how we were gonna get there. And what was interesting is, is we started to look at some of the work we had done on water and how we could replicate it. And some of the programs that I've talked about a little bit today, um, on an earlier panel, I'll just share here again, I'm very proud of this program in Nigeria. 
that touched 21,000 women and girls in Nigeria around a program that we call for shorthand ENGINE. So it's educating Nigerian girls around new enterprises. So how do we actually bring in the entrepreneurial spirit to teach these women how to run businesses, how to run proper bookkeeping, how to pay themselves a salary, and create the jobs in their communities? And what's fascinating is, is out of those 21,000 women and girls, over 55% of them now own businesses, run them, and are thriving. And then on top of that, there's another 10,000 women and girls who were not in school who are now employed because of this program. It was done in partnership. So DFID, the Nike Foundation, as well as Mercy Corps and the local governments worked with us on this. But that's a program where we know at this point in time those women and girls don't need us. They're gonna thrive, they're gonna be very successful, their communities will be better off. We were just a small part of that story. The story is really about them. And so those are the things that I'd point to as success. Thank you very much. So really importance of making sure that it's sustainable, that the skills, the training is there. It's not just getting the vaccines there, but also providing the infrastructure. So Stefano, um, Manservisi, thank you for coming. I had the pleasure of having you on a panel this morning, so I think you're doomed to deal with me for a couple of days now. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, the last mile, how, uh, you know, the bottom of the pyramid, reaching people in remote areas, making sure that the SDGs uh, are also, also involve the poorest of the poor. Uh, how important is that for our uh, European development policy? Well, thank you, and, and sorry for being a bit, a bit late, but the, the development days were, you know, particularly in the last session about education, were particularly rich and, uh, you know, challenging on, on this uh, very important, actually central um, issue. Now, um, may I maybe do a sort of methodological um, observation, maybe, before arriving to this? Because, you know... Um, I have sometimes the impression that when we are talking about uh, the implementation of SDGs like this, we are, more, uh, we are still closer to the MDG logic than the SDG one. I mean, sorry to be very blunt, but this is perceivable. I mean, we are, we are even in the definition that therefore the, the key issue is uh, to, uh, that SDGs is uh, a matter for all nations and people in the full segment of society. This means ending poverty in all its form. Yeah, okay, but first, it means that all societies, which means first and foremost that we have to reflect about our policies, not just on what we are doing, because we can change, we can keep investing, we can do things, private investment, all what we want. But if our policies are not SDG, not SDG compliant, you know, I mean, part of the work is over. So, I mean, SDGs is much more sophisticated because they are putting in question first the policies global, the policies that each of us are developing, and then the chance building on better policies, which are SDG compliant, then to achieve the SDGs, which will imply to end poverty in a lasting way. Otherwise, I think, you know, which means several things, because poverty is multifaceted. is the poverty of those which are already poor. But there is the poverty of those which are almost newly middle class, but which are at risk precisely to fall back into poverty. 
And this, you know, is particularly true in the, the so-called middle-income countries. We have just achieved a certain level, which implies a certain number of things that we do not have the time to address. But for example, is GDP still a relevant or the only relevant measurement of this? So simply, this is the methodological, let's say, remark that they wanted to do, because if we don't change a bit the way in which we are looking at the SDGs, and we believe that it is an MDG plus, I think that we are not capturing it, which means holistic approach, whole of the government approach, mobilizing at the same time civil society, whatever, which implies also uh, raising some question about which is the governance of the world in which we are doing. I mean, the, the way in which SDGs could be attained, for example, through the Belt and Road Initiative, I think is slightly different on the way in which we believe it could be reached in a different way. I don't want to say this is conflicting, but simply that there are competing uh, models, you know, uh, which then we can find into the education, into um, involved private sector, et cetera, et cetera. This, I think, needs to be reflected and factor into our reflection much more. Otherwise, we'll fall back into just a, the technology of innovation, but downstream and not a bit upstream. I, I, I wanted to say that even if you know, it deviates a bit, because if we don't do it, then, I, I, then in my view, we are not uh, able to capture what you're doing, which means that the very concept with which we are working sometimes is a bit challenged by fact. You know, I mean, we're talking about development, we're talking about SDGs. In reality, we have to talk about a transformative agenda uh, of, of the world. And this is what we, we are talking about. Because, you know, we, you can find poverty, fight against poverty, but if we don't change the model of producing energy, for example, if you don't change the model of consuming, and therefore the, the model in which you have access to food, you know, I don't think it, it, it will last. In any case, this is our experience. In any case, this is what we, uh, we believed when, as Europeans, we were at the forefront of the Agenda 2030 setting and of the SDGs, which is very much a, a European uh, I mean, result. Um, I mean, for, for once, a collective behavior. Now, the poor of the poor, however, which are still existing. Uh, and therefore, they will remain high in our agenda. The commitment that we took to dedicate a percentage, a high percentage of our aid meaning, therefore, of our effort for LDCs and for the poorest remain high, remain untouched, and will remain in our proposal in the next multi-annual financial framework and in our legal base. So we concentrate very much the money, for what the money is worth, in these countries. We will concentrate also in the pocket of poverty, which exists also elsewhere, because it is also evidence-based that this, uh, that poverty is spread, or the propension to poverty is also spread around. I think that this should suggest activities. Now, how to do it? I mean, is the mix that has been has, has been agreed? Certainly, a lot of intervention in order to. Make institutions more more responsible, more capable, more legitimate, if I may say, because they're, they're accountable, of course, more transparent, fighting against corruption, having an agenda which is very much driven by frank dialogue, because if there is no acceptance responsibility, it's clear that you know, we cannot do on behalf of anybody. By the way, this is not our approach. Second. Empowering people. I mean, we spent uh, the whole day talking about gender. I mean, if there is one thing in which the communalists are there is that we need to have a top, uh, a top down in sense of awareness, strong commitment, coordination, no, no space 
for, for violence, for example, or for exclusion, but we have to work uh, bottom-up, because if civil society is not mobilized to make the change possible from inside and reform, I mean, this will not last. It's different, it's different, because, because precisely all the MDGs could have been possible by strong intervention of ours on behalf of and presenting a product. Today, this is not the agenda. The agenda is empowering. The agenda is creating conditions for people doing on its own and pushing for reforms and pushing for changes, because this is, this is the point. The point of. Second is, uh, very often when we are talking about uh, situation of fragility and, uh, or conflict, uh, you know, to have, uh, since the outset, the good common analysis which is enabling us to mobilize humanitarian and development. Also, this differentiation sometimes is a bit oldish. Humanitarian meaning arriving quickly in order to, let's say, keep people alive, basically. But then we have immediately put the elements which are, which are making our intervention lasting. Uh, in, ter and in terms of education, in terms of health, uh, this is particularly true, because otherwise this is the first area in which uh, you know, people are set aside. And third, private sector, because this is also in crisis, also in the weakest, uh, private sector is important. Let's be a bit more precise, however, because there are two interventions in private sector. One is, uh, let's say, uh, say an alliance of the public uh, policy, foundation, you know, um, Charities are big, by the way, important. I remember Jeffrey Sachs' call in order to mobilize the richest, the 1% richest in the world, in order not to put money to the service of this. But, uh, but what I mean is also private sector, which is true private sector in the sense uh, profit-based business. And this is something on which we have to work, because our profound belief uh, is that we can marry, you know, the... SDG attainment with sound profit for companies. Where? In the right policies. In sustainable uh, energy, for example. In the sustainable exploitation of forestry, for example. Sustainable exploitation of our planet in general, which can marry a culture of respect, a culture of, uh, let's say, sustainability, and also a culture of profit, uh, where uh, people are a bit less consumer, passive, but more protagonist of the choices. Here, there is a huge potentiality to discover. We are at the beginning, as Europeans, at the beginning in the sense of our tools, you know, the, the external investment plan, etc. But I think uh, it is useful to make clarity, because when we are talking also recently in G7, private sector, private sector, you know, I mean, very often, in particular, in a certain culture, and uh, my American friends were very much saying, um, profit, profit, uh, you know, private, private. Well, are private uh, to lead to the implementation of SDGs? Because otherwise, private sector doesn't need uh, us to do the preference. That's normal. But what I'm saying is private sector, which is an ally to reach this, which means a reform. I started with this in our world to, to factor into our profit-making sustainability. This is, the, I mean, the link between us and, and developing countries. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Stefano. It was a really, really interesting insight. And when you talked about profit-based business, I was thinking also about banking, because I'm empowering people uh, is actually also through banking. And I think India is, is an example of how they've given uh, accounts and bank accounts to the poorest of the poor, and that has made them active citizens. Just a question for all of you to think about. You know, Stefano raised the issue of governance. And I think one of the issues, think about it, everyone, is that, you know, the votes come from the urban areas very much, right? So that's why governments, uh, capitals pay attention to what's happening in the urban areas. 
urban centers. And somehow the last mile, the bottom of the pyramid gets uh, ignored, neglected, because they're not actually voting. Um, they're not actually taking part in the political process. So just think about it when you come in. Thank you very much indeed to the four impulse speakers. They've kick-started a very interesting discussion. We have until 9.30 to take the conversation forward. I'm going to, as I said, turn, turn around and look at you. And if you want to come in on some of the very important issues that have been raised so far, but also your own ideas, uh, please do jump in and just put up your hand and show me um, that you're interested in coming in. I already have David McNair, who's signaled an interest, um, one campaign, right, David? So um, you have a microphone. I'm keeping this one, uh, I'm in charge. But uh, come in, uh, David, and, and please, <laughs> it's important, right? Women's empowerment and all that. So um, I, I, I keep the microphone. But please, David. Thanks, Shara. Uh, the One Campaign is a movement of nine million people trying to build the political will and convince governments to make investments or change policies that will help end poverty. And we are facing the toughest environment that we've ever faced. In the United States, where we have our biggest presence, uh, the president wants to cut the foreign assistance budget by a third. Uh, and you know, one of our biggest successes was convincing the George W. Bush administration to back the fight against AIDS. And as a result of the decisions that he made, there are now 11 million people who are alive who wouldn't otherwise be. The current president doesn't understand the difference between HIV and HPV. That would be funny. That would be funny if it wasn't true. It is true. Um, the other thing that we're, f we're facing in, in Brussels, and to be frank, you know, too much of the debate around foreign policy and foreign assistance is about keeping people out. And if we look at the demographic trends in sub-Saharan Africa, the population will double by 2050. And as Europe gets older, Africa is getting younger. So it could supply the labor, the energy, the economic growth that this continent needs. And we need to, to particularly you know, one year out from the European elections, we need to find a way of presenting a vision of partnership between Europe and Africa, which is about common interests, which is about common values, not about trying to keep people out or demonize people or see them as a threat. And that's, that's a re very real risk for our work because if you're trying to convince political leaders uh, that this, these investments matter, investments in education and in infrastructure, in, in empowering people, in healthcare and so on. It's very hard to do whenever you're competing with a narrative of fear. So I would love us to think not just about you know, micro-level solutions and kind of ideas that are really innovative and great. We need those, and we also need those to convince political leaders that, that interesting things are happening. But we also need to find a way of countering that very powerful narrative of fear. One thing that has been quite powerful for us is to say, actually, African leaders are taking charge of their own destiny. Uh, we were part of a, a, a very impactful and valuable replenishment conference uh, in February in Senegal, uh, hosted by Macky Sall and Emmanuel Macron, the Global Partnership for Education. That was successful. Donors committed $2.3 billion. But what was interesting was that the developing countries that came committed $110 billion. The AU this year has uh, identified this year as the year of anti-corruption. And we are working with them to identify the policies that they should put in place to, to address the things that will make this new common free trade area effective. Uh, and the, thing, the, the things that, that we need to do in Europe and also in North America and, and in other locations is to think, how can we get our own house in order? The Europe has done the right thing in terms of its directive on, on anti-money laundering, for example, and addressing the way in which European financial systems and legal systems can be a haven for, for corrupt assets. 
But we also need to look at that big picture, as I said before, countering the narrative of fear, asking ourselves the question, what kind of Europe do we want to be? One that builds walls or one that is open, uh, that invests in our partners and pursues common interests? Because if Africa feels, it's, it's, it's quite a stark choice, Europe will feel, feel. Because if you have you know, millions of young people who don't have access to employment, uh, who don't have access to skills, and who are frustrated, uh, then they are people who are vulnerable to what we describe as three extremes. Extreme poverty, extreme climate, and extreme ideology. And for a continent that is 14 kilometers from, from Europe, that's a scary prospect. So I, I would love for the people in this room to kind of think about how do we use our networks, our skills, uh, the, the people that we talk to, to, to counter that narrative of fear and actually talk about common interests, common values, and how we promote prosperity for everyone. Thank you, David. And in fact, I mean, my colleague Natalie was just telling me, because I didn't have time to look at the news, that the latest sort of uh, evidence from the Council of Ministers is, again, the narrative of fear, the narrative of keep them out, the walls being built, the, you know, um, the whole idea that somehow we cannot accept. And I think it's a question of management, isn't it, in the end, right? So thank you very much, uh, David, for that. I see uh, your hand going up. Please just give, yes, absolutely. So can we, can we just introduce yourself yeah, yeah, yeah. very briefly? Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks so much for hosting us, Shada. My name is Henrietta Kolb, and I lead IFC's gender work. IFC is the private sector arm of the World Bank. Some of you might have worked with us or co-invested. And I'm shamelessly bouncing back to the topic of women and girls and the role of the private sector and sort of have a couple of follow-on points from what I've heard from our, you know, impetus speakers. And so maybe starting off with Naoko, I think one thing that resonates with us is very much you're stressing out for the, you know, low-income pyramid, it, the challenge around care. And so I think for the longest time we've looked to governments only to resolve the issue of redistributing care. And I think the private sector needs to come in much stronger. And in fact, if you look at the Women Business and the Law Report that the World Bank's putting out every two years, you can actually see that it's now mandatory in 25 countries for the private sector to provide childcare. And of course, most of the companies look to us and they're like, we have no idea. We know flour, we know sugar, we know banking, but good Lord, we have no idea what to do about childcare about liability, what is safe, what's affordable, and so on. So I think we have an opportunity to really rally and bring in the private sector to not only provide affordable, safe childcare to their own employees, but stretching it out into the communities. And we've seen some formidable evidence from the agricultural side in Africa, where clearly you have you know, agribusiness companies with low margins offering childcare opportunities to their seasonal workers and seeing the huge uptakes of that because seasonal workers return back to the same companies. So we're really honing in on the business case of providing the care, and we see huge reductions in absenteeism, and of course also in terms of loyalty and returning from maternity leave and paternity leave where there is such thing. Um, so I think that's on care, and I think the role of the private sector needs to expand in that, that remit. We would all wish that everyone's Norway and funds extensively um, early childhood education, but we know that you know, in reality, that's that's not going to happen because the tax base is too low. The second part is to Leong in the UNIDO. You mentioned, you know, fourth industrial revolution, future of work. And I think there we have yet to understand fully how sharing economy business models are actually impacting on women and men extremely differently and not to sort of, you know, bring up too much propaganda, but um, here's a little report that we've done with, of all probably companies you might be surprised, Uber. 
not really well known for um, being at the forefront of gender equality necessarily, but they released their sex disaggregated data in over 10 markets to us. And what we found out is, what are the opportunities and barriers for women to be drivers and to be riders? And that has impact beyond urban areas in connectivity into semi-urban areas and then spillover effects. No one has sex disaggregated data, no one. Pew, OECD, and others you know, have done fantastic reports about the sharing economy, and everyone's super excited about its growth and its potential. But without the evidence of how it impacts women and men differently, I think we're in big trouble, because it could potentially divide us further as opposed to being really responsible for inclusive growth. Um, last point, and I know we have to be concise, so I'm just going to jump the last point, which is finance. Obviously, as a bank, um, I would be amiss not to mention it. The one thing I would warn us though is, you know, we all look to digital financial services as the advent and solver of potential, you know, sort of last mile issues. And what we've seen in the Findex of the World Bank just came out is that actually between 2011 and 2018, the gender gap hasn't closed at all, like zero globally. There have been highlights like India and Pakistan and Bangladesh, but without governments, you know, very strong commitment, there's either access and no usage, but oftentimes not even access. And so I think just saying digital empowers is probably shortchanging the last mile because we have to make much more stronger efforts to design within for the poor and actually within for women. Um, if, we, if we don't do that, I think we're just sort of perpetuating the existing gaps. And to finish up with Stefano on violence, I think the private sector is only just starting with hashtag me too to really come in and kind of go everyone under you know, anti-sexual harassment training, some of which might not always be super effective. Um, but what's clear is that at least in our engagement and investor in the Pacific and Haiti and other places, our companies recognizing that huge amounts of absenteeism is lost because of gender-based violence, and they're getting more and more engaged, not just at the workplace, but indeed also in the community. So we're launching with the private sector for the very first time in Papua New Guinea a safe house for victims of violence, so not just looking at prevention, but also actually as, as, as victims. So I think the private sector has uh, a ton of work to be done um, together with us as partners, but we are venturing into areas that probably 10 years were unthinkable. Gender-based violence in the private sector, everyone would have looked at you and said, oh, why on earth would you bring in companies? And now it's pretty much um, business as usual. The one thing we need is data but we also need data and courage to use it. Because just asking for more sex disaggregated data and not using it at the highest level of interaction, I don't think is, is helping. And Madame Lagarde has clearly done that. And I think there's a lot of us in the room who can really utilize data in a much more powerful for way. And I know one, one for one, you're using data in an incredibly powerful way. And I think that's what we can learn from you. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for all those insights. Um, just makes you wonder, doesn't it, uh, why all these stories aren't being communicated to the wider public? And, and, and that's something that we really need to think about as well. I mean, Friends of Europe, we're doing our bit to do that. But why aren't the stories of empowerment, of, um, of success, achievements, why aren't they getting across? And why are we being sort of uh, buried under an avalanche of bad news stories. And so I would really sort of turn to all of you who are so committed here at the European Development Days and beyond to bring those stories to the fore. I think it behoves us to do that because otherwise we're just amplifying, um, by not doing it, we're amplifying messages that are really, really uh, negative and uh, absolutely fearful. Um, so thank you very much. Tomorrow morning at the EDDs, just so you know, we're doing something on women and entrepreneurs. So I would recommend that, you know, if you can, please come in at nine o'clock and be there. I think you'll hear some very wonderful stories there as well. The good news stories that I think are so important. Right. So yourself, please introduce yourself.
Thank you. Hi, my name's Jesse Griffiths from Euridad. Um, I just wrote a rather long but, but fascinating paper on financing the SDGs, which was an attempt to look at all the different sources of finance and how we might actually achieve these ambitious goals. Um, and if you want to read it, www.euridad.org, please download and enjoy. But I think there's three key messages that I think might be very useful actually to frame or to input into this discussion. One, and all three of them I think are not often enough heard in this kind of debate. The first is if we think about public finance, whether it comes from governments or uh, aid agencies or philanthropy, the SDGs require a massive increase in public expenditure. Really quite massive. So education for all, quality healthcare for all, we know about the costs of that and most of that is publicly funded, but we're also talking about social protection for all, high quality infrastructure, which is mostly publicly funded. And the example of Ethiopia is very illustrative there. That's a huge public investment in infrastructure that's driven the boom that we've talked about. But also we talked about uh, the care economy. So by some estimates, 25 unpaid care is worth 25% of GDP. If we're serious, about doing something about that, then that means spending quite a lot of public money. And there's no way of getting around that, that fact. And so, you know, we need a call to arms to meet 0.7, for example, on, on, uh, on aid, but also to improve tax collection, which will be the main source of public expenditure to stop tax avoidance, tax evasion. These are kind of very important parts of the SDG agenda. So that's one message. Second is, when you look at private finance, which is mostly uh, domestically raised, um, one thing that really strikes you is quite how risky the international private system is for developing countries. So the UN has a statistic, so they estimate since 2014, on a net basis, in terms of looking international finance, private finance in and out, developing countries have been losing money. So money has been coming out of developing countries. Uh, and we've seen now the problems in Turkey, in Argentina. There are huge risks involved in the international private financial system that we need to address. So for me, that's, you know, we're not just automatically going forward. We can go backwards if we don't address some of these risks. Which brings me back to the third point, which is the one that Mr. Mansavisi started with, which is that it, there's a lot of systemic issues. It's not just about money and where does the money come from and how, we, how do we spend it. It's also about the trade system the finance system, the monetary system, and a lot of the decisions that get made that affect whether we'll achieve the SDGs are made in Europe or in the United States. And one thing we've been working on and with the One Campaign is how do we stop the massive drain, loss of uh, resources through tax avoidance, tax evasion, illicit financial flows, corruption, and so on. Uh, and we know most of the world's tax havens are in Europe. So this is a problem for us to solve if we're really going to help uh, the world achieve the SDGs, I think. Thank you very much, Jesse. So very sobering words. And uh, what you've just said about tax avoidance, so we had Mo Ibrahim yesterday at our Africa uh, conference. And there was a point he made very, very forcefully about Europe's implication, involvement in uh, this illegal transfers of funds. Um, thank you very much for saying that, uh, pointing that out. Janina? From Rio Tinto, yes. Uh, there is a microphone, so if you could just, uh, this one there, thank you very much. Um, 
please just introduce yourself very, very briefly. Oh, thanks very much, Shada. Uh, Yanina Gawler from uh, Rio Tinto. Um, I think in response to some of the comments made about the private sector, um, Rio Tinto is a mining company. Uh, we have uh, interest in Africa. Um, we, we mine extensively uh, minerals, particularly focusing now on renewable in, in the renewable area around copper, um, obviously aluminium, bauxite, uh, iron ore, and uh, lithium uh, interests as well. I wanted to uh, reflect on Belinda's comments on uh, women's participation. Uh, clearly, we're seeking uh, mining more and more in uh, remote areas, and so the, the both the impact but also the responsibility to work with local communities, to work with women and empower their decision-making, their um, opportunities for growth is one of the ways in which we w operate as a, as a key principle. Uh, a partner to operate pillar is uh, fundamental to our thinking within the organisation. It goes across all of our uh, organisations, both our assets and our functions, uh, globally. And that partner to operate looks at the responsibilities we have for sustainability, for meeting regulatory responsibility, but also working from the ground up to ensure that there are, a, there are legacy relationships that are left in the long term once we withdraw. Because obviously markets and, and cycles can often be quite challenging, as indeed countries and their decisions about mineral concessions can also be quite challenging. But our investment should be um, for women to be empowered. Um, can I just reflect a little on some of the areas of challenge? That The mining industry is moving much more into the technological uh, frame. The numbers of employees are reducing, while well, investment during the uh, infrastructure phase um, with uh, par other partners, very significant. But when you come to operating a mine with technology, the numbers are reducing. And th this really requires a great deal more investment in the education area, technological education. Now, women have not always been the, the recipients or have ad had access to science and technology education, and we think that's a, a really primary area that there needs to be much more development around. Um, and so that's where, through our lens of social investment, aligned with our operations, we are utilising the uh, SDGs as a means of the empowerment and participation. I wanted also to uh, address the issues around healthcare because that's been part of our investments, particularly on uh, the African continent on HIV, historically. But where the public policy and the public partner partnerships can occur with the governments, with uh, European Union investments and other uh, players in the, in the investment sector, how do we work together so that that investment in education technology comes ahead of those investments because quite often the investments come uh, at, a, at a speed. Once you've co collected your investment, the investment comes but the, the country may not be ready for that investment. And often there's an influx of external players and the beneficiaries are not the local people to the extent that there needs to be. And so how do we work ahead of that curve of investment to ensure that the investment of technology and education is in place? And I look to places like Mongolia where that has been clearly a significant part of the way in which the Mongolian community has established its education framework. 98% of our workforce in Mongolia are local people. And that's because we were working with a highly technologically invested community even though they were moving into a development area. Um, and Justin, finally, to look at your good news stories, not so much good news because it's actually reflecting on domestic violence issues, but Rio Tinto as a company has invested very strongly in our policy across the company, and we're now rolling this out into North America, that uh, 
perpetrators, victims, there is a, a, a means by which people can be working with local community organisations. We provide support for the families. We have gone through a, a training across the business uh, with a group called White Ribbon as part of um, uh, changing people's perspective on um, issues of violence against women to change that, that, that perspective to empower people's participation and, and women's participation both in the workforce and the family. Just wonder also for sorry, oops. Um, wonder, <laughs> wonder also for our private sector uh, representatives here. Just how easy has it been, or difficult has it been, to actually engage with the policymakers on um, synergizing your priorities and concerns? I just think about it, and I'll come back to it. I mean, I'm not sure. It's it's fairly new, and so I'm not sure to what extent this is now part of the uh, development paradigm, if if it were. So I'm happy to take, so just give me a show of hands. Uh, I'm going to otherwise pick on you and, you know, Jaya from the Ambassador of Singapore knows I pick on people. Yeah, I know, I've seen. Yes, absolutely. So uh, let's let's go now to Doris and just, sorry, no, yep, I keep this, you keep that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm Dokas from Ghana. I'm very happy to be here this evening with friends of Europe and I'll say I appreciate that a lot and then the European Commission. Thank you so much. I work with um, Asige Ghana. That's, I'm the founder and then the executive director. We empower women in basket weaving, share butter production, uh, and as well as girls' education. Per your question that you asked concerning uh, financial training, yeah, I think that uh, with the financial training will help work in the sense that what I'm doing now is after they, after they weave the basket and then the basket are sold, I don't give them the money physically to their hands, but I make sure that each of the women have a bank account. So currently, we, I have 200, 219 women in my basket project, and out of these 219, I've opened an account for 68 women. And these 68 women, it's the account that is encouraging, is encouraging them because they learned the spirit of saving, and this savings also empowered them to take care of their children in schools and also put food on tables for their families. So I, I support the idea of investing in a bank because it will help empower them financially. And then um, the uh, Africa, concerning Africa, women are more than the 1.2 billion population on the African continent. Now, do you know that 60% are still under 25 years and majority are girls? So what I'm proposing is that now it's very difficult for policymakers to take decisions as to how to solve the problems on boys, uh, girls and women on African continent. So what I'm proposing is that both the public and the private sector have to partner and develop, uh, they have to partner and uh, develop an accelerated, equitable, inclusive investment in women businesses so that they will not leave women and girls behind as they stand key for achievements of the Sustainable Development Goals. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, and tomorrow you'll be on our, on, our, on our panel to explain this a bit further, but I just wanted to actually ask the private sector, I mean, are you giving a special emphasis underlining the women's uh, businesses, women's entrepreneurs? Just quickly, Bea, quickly. 
Yes. So for us, women are the backbone of our business. They're 70% of our purchasers. So it goes back to a little bit about what you had mentioned, which this has to be core to business when the private sector is involved. And we flipped how we think about sustainability. We've actually gotten rid of the word CSR and we don't fund a lot of these things out of our foundations anymore. We actually fund it out of the P&L and out of the business because that way we know it'll be sustainable and it actually will make a difference. And so as we think about policies as it relates to women and programs that we build, we're looking at what's in the best interest of the woman and the girls and what's going to help that community. Because if the community is thriving, then our business is going to ultimately thrive. And just to answer your question around how is it to work with the policymakers as well, we found that we have to earn our seat at the table by actually showing results and being very transparent. And we need to be invited into those dialogues. I'd say on water, Coca-Cola has been invited in around policy discussions. But until we actually prove that we're serious, we're committed, and we're going to spend the money and take the time to really drive what's right for the community and to move towards the sustainable development goals, then it is a challenge because it's the credibility that earns us the seat at the table through the results and through the transparency. Very important point. Do you want to just come in very, very quickly? Because there are other people waiting, yeah. Briefly comment that that's exactly the case, that you have to earn the trust mm. by demonstrating the, the, that you are actually delivering on, on these commitments. And while the policy framework may not have always been as easy, perhaps, because where it's coming from is often quite difficult from point of view of entry, right. once you've earned your, your stripes, in effect, you're at the table, you can be at the table. Okay. Thank you very much. Richard uh, Amor from the European Investment Bank wants to come in as well. Thank you. So it's a fascinating discussion, and I think maybe just a, two or three observations from our side as a, as a financier working in Africa. Uh, maybe firstly is that we need to have a two-pronged complementary approach to both working in sustainable cities, so that's putting in place the vital enabling infrastructure that provides the, the ecosystem to allow the private sector to thrive, I think that's crucial. But then also going out to those rural projects and hitting that last mile. So there's a couple of things that we're certainly proud of that we've been put in place in the last couple of years. That's off-grid solar across many parts of Central and Eastern Africa. And these are projects that have a huge impact on women and children. This allows people to learn longer and to have a job and to safety, if nothing else. And also rural telecom. This is a massively important issue for, for many people in, for us, it was in, the, in DRC. These are for, for women, for, for youth, for the populations to have access to mobile phones for 24 hours of the, of the day is a crucial change and a massive sea change for many parts of the community. A second point I would say is, is, is something we've talked about, but it's access to finance for, for women. And this is something that the EIB is taking increasingly. It's a very, very important thing. And we're supporting a bank in Ethiopia, which has been mentioned quite a lot tonight as a, as a success story. But it's a, a financial institution called ENAT. And this is a bank that is focusing on supporting women entrepreneurs. And what they're doing is, is in, in every time that they meet a, a new client, or every time that they, 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 they meet a new business, they're looking as to whether these are female-led whether they're female-owned, and they're looking how they can support them. So we provide technical assistance to uh, improve the quality of the ENAT loan officers and the bankers, but also the final beneficiaries and the clients. And it's this 
this dual-pronged approach again that is crucial to improve access to finance for, for women. Final point, and I know you wanted to be brief and punchy, and I think it was a really interesting point uh, that, that I, I'm sorry I didn't catch your, your name there, but, but about the fact that public funds and grants, uh, we're never going to, there's never going to be enough money to... to I made the opposite. But, 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 we have to raise the money. We have to raise the money. But one of the ways to... One of the, Exactly, but one of the ways to, 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 to hit that and to, to hit those, those, those huge targets is also crowding in the private sector, which we've heard, we've heard today. And I think one of the interesting points, and certainly the EIB, in very close consultation with the European Commission under the EIP, is we've gone out to institutional investors and we've gone out to pension funds and we've gone out to those people who are looking to, who have access to the capital markets as to what they want and what they need what they need to lower the risks to do business in Africa. And I think we're, it's incumbent on all, upon all of us to find those innovative solutions to allow that huge source of money, that's this untapped money that is not being used in Africa right now, and to find ways to get that money into real projects on the ground. Thank you very much, Richard. You were at our Africa conference yesterday, and you know you've raised the issue of the mobile telephony and the leapfrogging that Africa is engaged in, actually going beyond the internet right into the mobile world and using it for governance issues, business, uh, agriculture, uh, women's empowerment, all of those issues. So I'm uh, looking around me, and uh, I see more hands. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Let's take Ambassador. Would you like to come in, please? I'll go this way. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, I'm not real ambassador. Okay. I am the deputy ambassador. <laughs> My name is Mike Mkura. I am from the Embassy of Zimbabwe. Thank you very much for this uh, invitation. And I've just got two issues to, to comment on. Firstly, um, just to inform that uh, I empathize very much with the struggles that our women folk meet. I grew up in the rural areas, and uh, I know how it is to go and fetch water on your head, firewood, cook, all those sort of things. So I don't just talk from a position of understanding but I've lived it, I've experienced it. So my, my two points are, firstly, I think there is one thing that we haven't really talked about. The issue of um, aid to developing countries. Aid usually kills initiative. So my concrete proposal is that uh, if aid agencies could move away from giving handouts to empowering our people, that would go a long way in making them independent. Secondly, the issue that I think my sister from Kenya, um, from Ghana raised, the issue about financial inclusivity. <clears throat> what I've noticed from, as I said, from my background is that the poor of the poorest, they don't need 
all they need is maybe $200 or $500 to start a project. But because our planners, they come from the top to the bottom, they don't see the need to provide for that little money. But taken from me, $100 can change someone's life. So in your projects or your programs, if you could try to accommodate people without uh, collateral, people who don't have references, but from experience, I think from Grameen Bank, the women who were given short loans, they were very good in paying back. So if you are, if you are going to talk the, walk the talk, and we're serious about uh, empowering the poor of the poor, look into, into these issues. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Deputy Ambassador. <laughs> but thank you very much indeed. You're absolutely right. And today we have discussed at the EDD's microcredits, microfinancing, and what you've just said, I think, just resonates very, very uh, strongly throughout the community that you're talking about. Just wonder how many bankers here have actually started microfinance windows or facilities, uh, or are these are, are your banks not the kind we're talking about? It's more the private banking sector that should be doing it. Any banker wants to come in on the issue of uh, microfinancing? Richard? Can, yeah, uh, sure. Uh, yes? Oh, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, I, did you put your hand up? Because I'm sitting quite far. Okay, just <laughs> maybe, maybe wave, you know? It's late in the day. Yeah, please, please, introduce yourself. Uh, I'm Odile Conchot. I'm working at the French Agency of Development, which is not really uh, yes, an agency of development, but uh, more or less a bank. And yes, we are financing microfinance. And either uh, directly also our private branch sector, um, Proparco. And some microfinance institutes are uh, financing uh, women entrepreneurs or women. And we, we make also in these cases some TA in order to help them. I will speak of that tomorrow morning. But uh, in order to help them of, uh, to, to being real entrepreneur, if I can say. Because I need some uh, account knowledge, uh, human resources knowledge, uh, management, and so on, and so on, and so That's very often money and TA also together. What is, what is your experience? Um, it's IFD, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's your experience with it? I mean, is it, as, as the deputy ambassador was saying, it works, women pay back, they're very good people to invest yeah. in? Yeah. Yeah, so the same experience, yes. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Right. Thank you. Sir? I'm going to come here. I'm, I will come here. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> My name is John. I work with AFSI Foundation in, in Uganda. Um, starting from yesterday, I listened to a lot of discussions and coming from Uganda, I find it difficult to put my thoughts together in the way a number of things are mentioned. But I just wanted to say that um, we have a lot of things we can do in order to change Africa. But one of the most important aspects that I think that is critical for us is education and training. And why is it education and training? I remember as a young boy growing up in Africa and my mother was trying to balance her resources in the house. 
she always put the resources for education first. When I asked her why, she told me, that is the only thing nobody will take it away from you. If I left land, I don't know if you will ever get it. But um, we did a program with women, and I think you'll be meeting some of them tomorrow at, at the stand. And we were supported by one of the leading banks in, uh, in Uganda. They gave us uh, funding, and the aim was to increase access of finance to women, but they wanted to make the women bankable. And the women were having what we call the village learning saving association. They collect their own money, put in a box, and then at the end distribute it, and this money grows over the, the course of the year. Today I was asking one of those women, and I asked her, how much did you collect last year? And she said, 500 million. I've never touched that in my life. But the point I wanted to make here is that uh, at the end, what the aim of it, why the bank gave us this funding, was the fact that they saw business in those women. They knew that when the women became bankable, there is business for them. But interestingly, none of those women chose to bank with that bank. And we asked them why. They said, well, after the financial literacy trainings, we got educated and we realized that that's not the best bank we should be putting our money. <laughs> that wasn't an easy explanation for us to give to. <laughs> but that's the same problem we face when we are designing policies for Africa. We talk to ourselves, we make the prescriptions, and we give it to them. We don't talk to them. We have templates over the world, and I, sometimes I was reviewing in the past some different uh, policies in Africa, and I was looking, did I read the one of Ivory Coast, or this is the one of Kenya? Because they were so similar. I think in order to reach the last mile, we need to find a way to talk to the last mile. And many of us, and I had my brother there saying, is that uh, it's not just the money that they need. We had a project uh, that we did with the US government. It had a menu of activities that we were giving to local groups. And we wanted to find out that out of all these menu of activities and things, what was the most critical aspect? And we did a randomized control trial on it. And what came out of this analysis was that the most critical aspect for them was a family strengthening aspect. And because they said that when, they, when we strengthen their families, they were courageous enough to go out and find solutions. And therefore, if we prescribe these solutions, assuming that we are giving them to an empty box, we risk to repeat the mistakes of the past. We risk to spend a lot 
where probably we shouldn't have spent, and we don't educate, we, we don't give something that empowers the other person. And uh, tomorrow probably, I don't know if you'll be listening to some, I, I heard you saying that we'll be talking to the women tomorrow, I don't know if they are part of what you'll be talking to, they'll be telling you, these women were over 3,000 women, Many of them were affected by the, the scourge of HIV AIDS. And when they were saving this money, they decided to do something in the past in order to change their situation. And I remember they talked to my colleague here because they were selling necklaces and retrieving something out of it in order to, to get to that goal. But what surprised us is that they were sick but they did not ask for a hospital. You can guess what they asked for. A school. They asked for a school and they invested in a school and right now they have a school that accommodates 600 children because they said they wanted to educate their children. And I think this is a very critical factor we should be thinking about. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for those very powerful insights that you've provided us. Thank you very much indeed. No templates, no, uh, no one-size-fits-all um, uh, recipes, if you like, for development. Thank you very much indeed. So, uh, sir, um, excuse me, you had your hand up, and I'd like to give you the floor now. So maybe, maybe this um, microphone can travel towards you, and then I'll go to Atsushi-san. And I think I saw a couple of other hands. Yes. Yes, good evening. Uh, so this is not only real food, thank you very much for this, but uh, there is uh, much more food for thought uh, this evening. And I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to be here. My name is Johann Fritz, I'm from GIZ, German Agency for International Cooperation. I'm the Director for Governance and Conflict. So um, I'm a little bit of the think tank um, unit within, within GIZ. Um, I think I couldn't agree more with the uh, um, from our perspective, with the um, finding that we um, should talk more to the last mile. Um, even us in GIZ, that is really an implementing partner and very close to the ground, I would say that one of the first lessons learned on LNOB was um, that uh, we needed to differentiate much more our target group analysis. We thought we were very good at it and we, were, we had it all under control and I would assume that the topic today, gender and maybe even youth, is quite okay. We do gender analysis in all projects and programs and so on. So this is okay. If the conclusion, if the uh, impact is, is correct, that's another discussion, but the analysis is okay. What we learned is there are so many so many vulnerable groups uh, in the society that we don't know about and we don't know what the needs are, um, which, which stroke us and which bring us to really the point we all need to make a big effort in differentiated target group uh, analysis. Uh, just to point out two aspects. Um, the one is uh, people with disabilities, the inclusion. Um, it is amazing uh, what we still have to do uh, when we go into missions and projects, uh, how scarce the data is, how scarce is the awareness of our partner institutions about this uh, focus. And this in times of leave no one behind, I think is a big um, challenge. Um, another one was very striking to me um, recently um, on all the projects that are now um, 
in some areas around the uh, forced migration issue, we learned that um, we need to understand much better the needs of the children in order not to produce a lost generation. And um, this is something I would as well urge very much all of us to look into this target group uh, much more because this is the future and we see so many kids with trauma in this area that we are now coming up with very strong programs on uh, mental and psycho so, uh, so, so, sociological support to to children particularly. This is one aspect. Then I did an, um, a little um, question to my team and said, so um, coming here and uh, what else would be an... Um, Something that probably would not pitch up in this in this round of discussion, and um, that has to do with what uh, Stefano said on creating the enabling environment, which I think is absolutely crucial. And here, um, colleagues came up with a, a program from Bangladesh where we are working with the justice sector, the uh, justice reform, and um, there are so many people in prison in Bangladesh that are not that are for years there without their case is being treated. And it's a simple solution at the end that the filing of their cases is not accurate. So the problem is at the end with the public administration and here the problem is with a lack of simple digital solutions of file cases, file numbers and so on. So the point I want to make here is that we really need to revisit the state capacity in this context of leave no one behind. And this is a project where you would not have the first thought that this is something to be considered, but thinking about those groups that are as well left very much behind, even behind bars, um, is I think something we should as well include in our analysis. Really uh, fascinating how many insights you're providing us, and I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I was born on the subcontinent, and I know exactly what the bureaucracy is like, and what you've said about cases just sort of lingering in people in uh, prisons because the cases haven't been heard. I think judicial reform is a very crucial point of uh, reaching the last mile, people who've been forgotten this time in jails, if you like. So Atsushi-san from JICA, please. Thank you, Sharasan. Uh, uh, beside me today, I have a colleague from Tokyo. Thank you very much for invitation to both of us. Uh, uh, before him, I'd like to uh, make a very brief comment on uh, uh, women's empowerment and the financial inclusions. Uh, uh, there are 500 million uh, smallholder families uh, around the world, comprising uh, uh, about 2 billion people. So there are at least uh, one billion uh, women uh, in smallholder families around the world. Uh, we know that the financial inclusion of smallholder families uh, enables proper agricultural development, reduces poverty, and increases food security as well. Uh, women are essential uh, part of financial inclusions. Um, JICA Research Institute in Tokyo conducted a study uh, on women empowerment in Bangladesh <laughs> uh, last year. Uh, since 1980s, uh, expansion of microfinance programs in rural areas uh, played a key role for improving women's uh, empowerment in Bangladesh. Uh, from analysis of household data collected uh, since uh, from 1988 to 2008 for around uh, 20 years, 
we found that uh, women's increased participation in microfinance activities is uh, associated with a larger role of women in household decision making on economic activities, which was enabled, of course, by uh, enhanced uh, bargaining power of women within households. Um, we found also that uh, women's educational attainment is associated with uh, uh, their non-agricultural market participation. So diversification of women's uh, options among economic activities uh, strengthened their independence and empowerment. This can be easily imagined. However, um, uh, there, are, there still exists a big gender gap in uh, financial inclusions among smallholder families. Not only are female uh, smallholders more financially ex excluded from men, they have also still lower levels of education and economic diversifications. A female smallholder make actually fewer investments uh, in agriculture despite their higher dependence on this sector as a resource of uh, income. Uh, these disparities between men and women increasingly sharp, uh, increases sharply from the poorer to the wealthier smallholder uh, households. Nowadays, uh, digital financial services are playing a central role in financial inclusions. Uh, mobile phone is, of course, uh, one of these uh, services which uh, reduces costs and connects uh, lower-income people to the formal banking system. But digital financial services cannot translate, cannot translate into a financial inclusion uh, of smallholder families uh, unless uh, these services would meet their real need. So we have often talked and heard about human-centric approach human-centered approach in the, uh, designing microfinance programs and other financial assistance. Uh, human-centered approach is built on uh, learnings gained directly from what customers value most in their specific environments. Um, it is not a top-down approach, but bottom-up bottom approaches. But furthermore, it is proposed uh, to extend this concept to uh, the level of uh, women-centric approach. Um, under, due, under this new concept, I know, uh, we would have some insights in design uh, stages of microfinances and other financial assistances. For example, uh, goals of financial assistance should be set up for women's uh, priorities and preferences uh, which are different from men, um, such as commitment savings for child education and the convenient payments for transport services in moving. They are different from men. Um, so, and financial services term, for example, should be also arranged for women who have fewer moments uh, of high peak in net income in a year. Um, this would suggest simply that longer-term loan repayment would be beneficial for women. And women's, women's high and low peak in net income could occur at much more different time, times than men. Uh, so a, appropriate timing in product offering uh, 
would then increase the product sustainability. For example, requesting a saving deposit at the time of their high income peak and accepting uh, credit applications uh, at the time of their low income peaks, etc. Um, these are very small ideas and actions to be taken, but we believe that this is effective. Uh, thank you very much. Asushi-san, small ideas, I don't think so. I think this is very, very much the point that certain measures need to be refined and defined specifically for women. Otherwise, you know, we lose the battle. So it's good to have good strategies overall, of course. We don't want to exclude the guys, right? We don't. But some things have to be very refined and women-centric, as, as you, as Jaika, have said. Thank you very much for your uh, contribution. Yes, Hachimoshi-san. So uh, you're jet-lagged, <laughs> but it's okay. So if you... It's okay. So please, do go ahead, yeah. Uh, okay. okay, so thank you very much for hosting this event, and also thank you very, very much for your invitation. Yeah, as she mentioned, I just arrived here today, and I'm just suffering from jet-lag, but it's okay now. Yeah. Okay, so uh, adding to his point, so I'd like to... At another point, so I think in order to achieve SDGs, uh, we have to find out new and effective and innovative ways. So this means which meets the current situation of our times. So from this viewpoint, I think uh, STI, uh, science, technology, and innovation, uh, has a big potential. So actually, the SDGs goal nine. Uh, it uh, infrastructure, industry, and innovation. And goal 17, it's a partnership. Yeah, clearly mentioned the importance of the STI. So, the, in, uh, I think in order to uh, utilize new innovative technologies for development, including STI, so I'd like to emphasize four important points uh, based on our experience. The first one is to keep the intellectual interest and continue free and open discussion in order to produce new ideas and technologies. And the second one is uh, society itself, itself has to uh, accept these new ideas and technologies flexibly. So, and uh, the third one is uh, our, our, yes, a third one is, uh, society uh, have to uh, uh, have to trying to have to try to meet the uh, different things. It's such as uh, mind, culture, tradition, and uh, also the, uh, another society, and so on. And the fourth is the most important point: continue the uh, investment on human capacity to develop abilities and skills in order to utilize new technologies. So through these considerations, we can establish a fair society where people of last mile can also receive the benefit from the uh, new technologies, STIs. So I'd like to introduce briefly JICA's uh, actual examples, which we utilize IT. In Jordan, the Yes, uh, we think that uh, there are a lot of Palestine refugees, so they are also the uh, last mile. So um, we 
support them uh, through an initiative of maternal and child health. So JICA started making and distributing mother and child health handbook, which is which and the which mothers can record their health conditions and related information like timing of the vaccination. And so in order to disseminate this handbook more effectively to whole, uh, whole uh, refugee mothers, JICA are developed an electronic version of the handbook. And also the digitalization of this handbook enables mothers and children in refugee camps to continue medical care, uh, such as the timing of the vaccination. And also uh, doctors, can, uh, doctors can refer their medical record with only one cell phone applications wherever they are as a result of forced displacement. So, and also as another effect, so anyone can use this, uh, this application very easily. So oh, not only mothers, but also fathers will be able to use it and be more involved with mother and child health. So this application has already been distributed to Palestinian uh, Palestine refugees, mothers. So we hope uh, this technology would uh, contribute to the uh, improvement of their situations. Yes, okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much, and thank you for actually reminding us that Palestinian and other refugees are also part of the last mile paradigm, and we tend to sometimes not think about that, and the importance of uh, including fathers and, and mothers as well. Thank you very much, Hashimoto-san, so please, uh, I need to give you the floor. Please, go ahead. Um, yeah, microphone. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really impressed by the level of conversation. Um, my name is Diana Schurmans. I'm a digital inclusion expert for ACP YPN, which is ACP Young Professional Network. And I'm also pursuing a PhD in digital inclusion. Uh, in Brussels. Um, I would like to contribute to this conversation by answering the following question. So how can emerging technologies help shift the path from poverty to prosperity in the last mile? I would say we need to reach out to the younger generations because this generation, wherever they live, here in Europe, in ACP uh, countries, they are the first generation which are born with the digital, so they are part of the digital generation. And I believe that these youth communities also have embodied rich diversities of culture, traditions, and uh, histories, which can enable us actually to rethink what is digital inclusion. So I would say that my main point would be, if we want to reach the last mind, we need to include the voices of those young communities uh, in the conversation on digital inclusion. This, this was my main point. We were really happy to have you also at our conference, our panel discussion a few months ago. So thank you very much, Dana. So I, I'd like to now turn to Anna Noll from uh, ECDPM. Can I just see a, a show of hands? This is uh, self-preservation because I have an early morning meeting tomorrow uh, at the EDDs. So can I see a show of hands of people who still 
feel that they would like to come in. Uh, Constance, I've seen you. And then I want to turn back to our impulse speakers just to get a very quick final uh, word. So we have Anna and then Constance, and then we'll go back to the impulse speakers. So Anna, please. Thank you, Shada. Thank you for having me, and thanks for the debate. Um, I work in the migration program at ECDPM. Um, I've just came back from two lo um, long missions um, in two African countries. I, I won't name them, but I want to talk a little bit about my area of work, which is looking at migration and, and refugees and displaced. Um, and it's true that we have not talked much about this particular group, but it is, in most cases, one of the most marginalized and, and sort of hardest to reach um, groups. Um, and a lot of the things that have been said, whether it's about empowerment, whether it's about education, skills training, and as, uh, access to finance ring very, rings very much true. So what I've done in these two countries is I've interviewed a lot of the refugees as well as host communities uh, there. And these are the things that constantly come up. Um, but even more important than that, it's the systems and it's the rights and it's the opportunities that people actually have. It's specifically for uh, refugees in this place. So in those two countries I was in in Africa, it was very two different uh, systems of rights. Uh, one um, project we looked at was skills training for people that actually could do something with it. They could move to the town, they could set up a business, they had some um, links to access to finance, and it was very much empowering. It was really this, when they got into the skills training, it was somehow like a life-changing opportunity for them. They really wanted to make something with it. Another context, um, very different rights system. Refugees and uh, displaced not allowed to actually do anything with the skills. A similar training, six-month skills training, it's nice to have, it's better than not doing anything, but it's not providing actually the opportunities. And it's all young people, and it's all wanting to do things. So, uh, And that's where the system change comes in, and I think uh, that links very much to the politics. So reaching the last mile and reaching the most marginalized is a lot of the times there for a reason that they have not yet been reached. So that's when the, the politics come in. Um, in the context of refugees, there's a very big shift happening that um, it's sort of uh, called the Comprehensive Refugee Response System. It's the global uh, agenda also in the Global Compact on Refugees. And I know that a lot of um, supporters and donors in the private sector is behind that. But that's very much needed, and that's a long-term change. And I would really urge everyone to really think about that, what um, it would take, and, and how the private sector, for example, could also push in the right way, certain ways they can... Um, lobby for things or do things, because that's not going to happen overnight, but it's very much needed to to reach those most vulnerable. And then maybe one last point, and that's maybe also more of a challenge we have not talked about. It's um, a lot of the things that came up also was about differences and different opportunities for different groups. So again, it's not without tension, and it's um, often it's about perceptions also, so one uh, group's gain and one group's opportunities is perceived by the other, other group as one group's loss. And we, specifically in African countries, it's um, in areas where there's conflict and tensions already. Um, and 
I mean, one anecdote was that we interviewed both groups, locals and refugees, and it was in an area where there was actually generally quite some peaceful interaction. But still, in this particular skills training, and we had the number, it was 60% nationals in that group, and 40% of them were refugees. But asking the refugee groups was, oh, it's really unfair, because all the time only the nationals get the opportunities, and, and vice versa, the other way around. So I think... When, especially when coming in from the external side, um, it uh, has to do with thinking about the conflict potential and, and how to manage that. And, and there are good ways of community dialogues and these things, but um, things tensions can be created through different fueling different perceptions of, of how opportunities uh, are perceived. So this is my my input. Thank you. Thank you very much. You know, we had um, a discussion, a dinner debate also on uh, migration, integration, and we had the mayor of Athens, uh, Georgios Kaminis, and his story was really you have to work with the local communities just as much as you have to work with the refugees. And that, he said, was the key to his uh, relative success in integration of, of refugees. So thank you very much for making that point. Uh, before I turn to Constance, I was wondering, Samantha from the Asian Development Bank, you know, um, you're here and love to hear what you have to say about these issues. No, 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 we need a mic. We, no, no, we need a mic. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Good evening, everybody. Samantha from the Asian Development Bank, and I'm actually based in our Frankfurt European Representative Office. I've been listening quietly to the conversation because it hasn't been very Asia-focused, and listening, trying to internalize um, what this whole conversation means for an organization like the Asian Development Bank, where our primary business is loans to governments, and uh, what it means for a region which, from the outside, is seen as very dynamic and strong economic growth, and as an organization that's also going through a lot of um, realigning our strategic position with the demands of the region. So I guess a few points come to mind, and um, I'm thinking about what, what reaching the last mile means for an organization like ours, and what it means for our core business, but what it also means in terms of things that we can do differently. So certainly in terms of our core business, um, yes, we are a very dynamic region, but we also have, we have to remember that we also have real pockets of fragility. Um, we're talking about Afghanistan as one of our member countries. We also haven't talked at all about small island states this evening, and we have to remember our Pacific Island membership, which um, really when we're talking about the last mile and the forgotten mile, <laughs> you know, poverty of, of opportunity, strong um, vulnerability to climate change. I think if you talk about the ten, ten most countries that are most prone to climate disaster, um, we're talking about about eight of them are amongst our membership. And also, if you talk about gender, very high levels of um, intimate partner violence. We have countries like Kiribati, where we're talking about 70% intimate partner violence. So. These are things that we hear less about, but if we, as an organization, if we're thinking about how are we going to, we can't change our fundamental business model, but we can think about how we're prioritizing our, 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 the way we engage. So a few things, we um, priority towards lagging states. If we're talking about our bigger countries, we're moving more to, um, towards working at sub-national level and, and the states which are lagging behind rather than national level. So that's very relevant in countries such as China and India. Um, we're also talking about a stronger emphasis on small island states and fragility. 
Um, and gender has always been something that's um, very prominent to us. So in terms of our core business and some of the things that we've been talking about today, how do we do that? So we're talking about the education sector. Um, we've had some success in terms of our technical and vocational training, matching um, women in non-traditional sectors to where there is greater employment demand. And so we've had some interesting success working with private sector um, and the public sector in countries such as the Democratic Republic of Laos, where we are we're deliberately um, giving scholarships and partners of, a, of secured employment for women in the construction industry, for example. Um, and when we're talking about we, we're largely an infrastructure bank in lots of ways, so how do we address women's employment? How do we move um, in the energy sector beyond the meter to... to uh, ensure that the investments in infrastructure are actually going as far as they can go. But I think fundamentally, at the end of the day, we've done, um, from the gender front, we've done some analysis with UN women in the region. Um, there are lots of things we can do in all these areas, but if we're really going to make fundamental change, there are a few areas that are much more transformative that we, um, as a multilateral development bank and other partners, need to think about seriously how do we actually get there. And we're talking about things such as uh, addressing f a systemic um, legal frameworks where gender discrimination still, still runs very strong. And as a, as a development bank, we need to be a bit more creative in how we do that. And some areas, um, which I can talk about a bit more tomorrow morning perhaps, is in the area of access to finance. So as part of our finance-based loans, how do we specifically target women through them, and through uh, discrete credit lines and combining that with financial literacy and business training as part of the condition of a loan? How do we incorporate in our policy-based loans some uh, transformative legal change, such as in the Solomon Islands where we've influenced a business regulation law to allow women to access without having their women's, the husband's signature. Um, or for example, in Vanuatu and Tonga, where we have done some work around removable assets can form collateral. So these are some of the um, examples that we, we're thinking about, but it's, I think there's no one size fits all, and I think we need to all reflect about how do we challenge our traditional business model to, to actually go that further mile. Thank so, you thank much, you. Samantha. Thank you also for pointing out the inequalities that exist in a region that's known for its booming economies and the rising Asia uh, conversation and narrative that we've all been become very accustomed to. So thank you very much indeed. So Constance, a uh, quick response from you or your, your comments, and then let me turn back to the uh, impulse speakers. Uh, she needs her microphone. Thank you. Sarah, yeah. thank you. I'm Constance, uh, Constance Khan with the European Investment Bank, but I must say that your comment uh, triggered, you know, my uh, uh, thinking about my, my previous life when I was working uh, with, uh, with Unilever, and I can only uh, endorse very much, you know, what you, uh, what you were saying. I recall we had a mantra at Unilever that, you know, doing good for community uh, was doing well for, for business, and it's the most powerful way, you know, uh, when you find that nexus, uh, because we, yeah, that, that is the self-interest, which is a good, you know, an enlightened self-interest, and it is the most sustainable, so to do business with benefits, 
or sometimes if I call it, you know, in the bank, you know, to do investments uh, with benefits and think more consciously about the benefits that you can, you know, realize uh, with, uh, with those uh, investments. Uh, my colleague Richard talked more about the lending, but I wanted to make a comment, you know, also about uh, the the other side of the business, the the funding, uh, and maybe link in uh, to uh, a comment that was also made by yeah, by Stefano before, uh, to uh, you know to to look at uh, at some of the of the models, and I'm actually you know very proud that the yeah, the EIB yeah, uh, we already announced it, but we're going to launch. You know, later this year, the sustainability awareness bonds, uh, and I think you know that here, you know, we're building on what we did, you know, back in 2007, uh, when we were really the pioneer, the first uh, on the uh, the climate awareness bonds. You know, we we now call it uh, the green bonds, because we, you know, end of the day, you know, to put the money to certain courses is still quite important, uh, and uh, you know, I, I do think. Uh, that with the sustainability awareness bonds, which we will start, you know, with uh, uh, with water uh, projects, you know, they can, you know, make a difference, you know, going forward because we will give the investors also a choice uh, to, uh, uh, to to put the money, you know, for uh, for certain courses. Thank you. So you learn so much at these dinner debates that we hold. I mean, um, interesting. Thank you very much, Constance, for bringing that. Up. So can I turn now to the um, initial speakers and to comment a little bit uh, of what you've learned and what you think is the way forward. Let's let's look forward. So let's do uh, linear again, uh, Madame Weda, Lee Young, Beatrice, and then last but not least, as always, Stefano, please. Uh, thank you. Uh, since, um, since I only, um, basically I focused on gender um, and gender and youth, uh, and also a middle income trap uh, in, the, in my first uh, intervention. Um, and I left out um, your questions, you know, being asked. So following up um, of the points, um, I think uh, what is important is that uh, we, are, you know, we, uh, this enriching discussion really made us realize that the development path is, you know, very complex and multidimensional. And there's no one-size-fits-all approach, as the colleague said. And you know, in some sense, in certain cases that uh, we probably need to tackle with the social protection policies, you know, tackle with the uh, welfare and sanitation, um, uh, those things. But in other cases, uh, what is important is that for low-income countries um, as well, in Africa as well, that they need to um, to really uh, built for like innovation uh, 4.0 and that they need to do the production transformation in order to pr uh, create jobs to really you know absorb uh, the youth uh, into the labor market and that is ne needed especially right now in Africa um, as well as in other regions of the world and therefore there is a need for the structured transformation uh, in which um, we need uh, you know, open trade policies and we need to incorporate those, you know, the private company's role is very important in that instances to, to help the countries get into closer to the global value chain. And, um, 
And also we talked about a little bit about uh, urban-rural nexus, especially in Africa, but I think also in Asia as well, especially that we, we, have, we tend to focus on like a capital or a rural, and we tend to forget, we tend to focus on the capital for the political voters, but it's important to really enhance rural development. And also that in this context, especially in Africa, as well as in Asia, we really see greater need to, to invest in intermediate intermediary cities, because that's where that's, uh, you know, the spot is, uh, is, needs to be filled. Uh, now, um, in terms of um, digitalization, yes, I believe that uh, there is a potential uh, for us to benefit from the digitalization, but for that we need a good enough digital infrastructure which needs to be still cultivated in developing countries. And also we need a good public policy making so that we can, we have to pro, uh, protect the private, you know, privacy. Right. We have to make sure that, you know, that there is no, there is a, that the system will be fair and competent, competitive. And all those uh, public policies needs to be put right for the digitalization to be benefiting. And then... Um, can I ask you to be just very yeah, brief of course, now? Yeah, of course. And then finally, I just want to, again, uh, go back to this issue of importance of not only mobilizing finance, which is important, but also to address to the policy making, public policy making exactly. of the developing countries, uh, to which you know, we talked about the mobilization of the domestic resources as well, like a tax, you know, and those policy interventions will be increasingly important. So yes, of course, we need to uh, leave no one behind, but it is not enough to tackle with this you know, like fragile states and refugees, those are very important, low-income countries, very important, but we need to, to tackle, go beyond um, this, um, you know, this limited uh, target of the people, but we need to go beyond the GDP per capita debates. We need to, to see the greater um, uh, evolution of this world development to really effectively tackle with this issue. Thank you very much, Ms. Ueda. So, Leong, uh, if I could ask you to be also to the point and brief, um, because as I said, we have had a very interesting discussion. We need to all work early tomorrow. Please. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I won't occupy too much of, your, uh, of our, all of your time. Uh, to be quick, a very uh, few quick points. I learned a lot from the uh, different uh, presentations from different angle uh, really uh, push me to think about something for uh, from my perspective um, especially i think a ppp uh, uh, the, the the public and private partnership uh, if we conduct a project uh, highway or so uh, you understand financing put together but uh, for the policies the strategies uh, uh, ppp is uh, most important thing. The government needs to play its role. It doesn't mean that uh, government uh, just uh, leave aside and let market play its own role. Uh, we understand that the strategy policies, conducive investment environment, and the policies, tax uh, uh, incentives are so important to attract private sector development, private sector moving. And the private sector will play its role. Uh, we call uh, third financing for development, that conference, 
we understand the four sources of financing important, uh, development financing, government financing, um, uh, charity, and uh, private financing, institutional investor pension fund, and uh, uh, those are losing uh, monetary policy create lots of funding actually in the private sector. How to invite the private sector to come in or instead of not to scare away the, the private sector is government need to create a good policy. Yeah, that, that is important. Uh, private company bring the seed money, uh, bring the technology, bring the uh, trainings, vacation training, ten, uh, temporary training, and access to market. So all the government need to develop a policy to introduce private sector to come. And another point is connectivity. Uh, I'm, I was invited to, by African Union to attend the signing ceremony for Africa CFTA signing ceremony in Kigali. Uh, very, very encouraging to see the 54 countries signed those uh, 46 countries out of 54 signed the agreement. Uh, why they signed the agreement? Because uh, CFTA largest one in the world, uh, country can move around with uh, free trade, free investment, not only in five sub-regions, uh, whole region, whole continent, and also connected to the global com community. So this is a very important connectivity. Final one, final one, according to the statistics by World Bank, UN, least developed countries basically agrarian. And start from agriculture, we need to find a clue, a right approach to connect it to the value chain. How to create manufacturing, agro-industry, agro-business, connected to quality infrastructure, laboratory standards, those are critical for the connectivity to the quality uh, to, to the value chain. And if country be isolated, I don't believe that uh, they will have the job creation and the income generation for women, for young people. Uh, we are not only thinking to support the individual lady, individual girl, we need to think about how to create large scale to eliminate last one mile to those group of countries needed badly to support women, young people for jobs, for economic development. Mm -hmm. I believe one of useful approach is a sustainable, inclusive industrialization. Thank you. I think that message has come across very well, Li Yong. Thank you very much indeed for those three or four very important points. Beatrice, please. Thank you, and, I'll, and I will be brief. First, thank you for allowing Coca-Cola to be here today. And, and what I heard around the conversation is we must have a broader definition of inclusion. And so thinking about people with disabilities and folks across other areas outside of Africa as well are gonna be critical, the refugee population. Also having benefits outlined for all key stakeholders. So what are the benefits to the government, to the corporations, to the community, more importantly? Are we really solving the relevant problems to that local community? And the list goes on. Measuring and tracking to make sure that we're reporting out on the results so we know what can be improved and also what needs to continue. And also, I really appreciated, John, I believe, what you said that your mother said, which is, 
if she only had $1 to spend, it would be on education because they can't take it away from you. What I'd also say, the other thing that can't be taken away from any of us is our reputations and our words. So if we truly commit to do these things and we do it the right ways, that also cannot be taken away through our integrity. So I really value that legacy that your mother has left in those words. And I think that all of us have the accountability to make that last mile come first. And so that's, I just wanted to thank you for having us here today. You're welcome. So Stefano, uh, a long day for you as well. Uh, also lots of, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how you do it. It's lots of ideas. Your mind must be spinning, uh, but uh, you're, you're integrating it, you're internalizing it. And so let's have some of your insights about what you think are, uh, are the issues that really need to be now really high up on the, on, on the EU agenda, the European Commission, DEFCO agenda, when it comes to dealing with the, uh, the last mile, the people who really need to be empowered if we're going to have a 21st century, which is really inclusive development for all. Well, thank you very much, first, for all, all the contributions and all the, let's say, the different point of view, but which are all converging in order to find the best way to be effective and to be holistic, because the two things are going together. Private sector of, of all kinds, public, different experiences, I think all those are conducive towards a real search. You know, first is nobody can pretend to put on the table a sort of blueprint to solve the problem. Second, I think that, uh, second point, I think that, uh, you know, we are usually uh, talk uh, and discuss among ourselves. Uh, I think uh, that there are uh, many missing big actors around, not only this table, but in reality, in general, China is one of them. Because I think that China is representing a big reality, which is doing a lot of good things, a lot of maybe of less good things. In any case, we have to compare notes. Uh, it's not possible that we keep thinking that the SDG agenda is the agenda of the duck club, just to be very blunt, you know, because it's not this. Yeah? Because if it's only this, it is restrictive, and in any case, we are keep talking among ourselves. Third, I think that we have to take much more seriously, you know, the dynamic between uh, public power and uh, people. Uh, I think that this is a new dynamic in reality because it's a dynamic in which uh, in all societies, including ours, you know, is showing at the same time protagonism, uh, but also the willingness to be constructive. You know, it's not it's not necessary alternative, but to be constructive, which means that you know that very old habits, if if not the old ruling class, which sometimes is going together, you know, uh, should think a bit in a different way. When we are sometimes a bit maybe ideological, you know, insisting on changes in the reform and good in good governance in democracy, you know, we are doing that because we presume. Uh, our experience to presume a certain number of values. But let's put that differently, you know. There are layers of powers which are simply preventing any kind of creativity. And let's call that in this way, if you prefer. You know, sometimes uh, this is criticized because it seems that Europeans are making lessons of democracy and sometimes we are not even credible because, you know, there are some problems also in our camp. You know, uh, but, uh, but, but, but let's put that differently, you know. This way of uh, uh, governing is simply preventing. 
creativity, participation, and growing up. It's not a question of opposition and whatever. It's a question of liberating forces. On the other hand, civil society should also stand up and take its own responsibility. It has been for too long a bit way in which you know they were just uh, waiting for external support. I think that the domestic resource mobilization is one of the key uh, issue in developing countries. Because we can do all what we want, but if there is not a dynamic which is uh, taken up internally in mobilizing resources, in a fair taxation, in a distribution of revenues, well, I mean, then we can maybe have a moment in which poverty is, re is reduced, but then this will not, will not stand. By the way, the best example of this is not in the poorest countries, it's in the middle-income countries. I mean, precisely where taxation policy are particularly unfair, particularly, uh, I mean, they're not allowing any kind of distribution, and therefore at the first crisis could be climate change related, uh, let's say tension related, migration related, they fall apart. This is, this is the reality. I think that from this point of view, I mean, many inputs were extremely helpful. First, not to lose sight from what you call the last mile, which is the poor among the poor. Because in any case, you know, as we said, the, the final test of our policy is about people. And therefore, if we are not able to, I mean, to, to improve the, the living condition and we have not given evidence that whatever we are doing is helpful in order to help the last of the last, it's clearly that we are not credible. But at the same time, you know, in doing this, we should remain holistic. We have to build what we are saying from different perspectives is much more complex than an action plan. Uh, is, is, a, is a plan of reform source in our country. I mean, take uh, migration policy, for example, just to say something which is not uh, particularly easy. You know, are we Europeans, are uh, our US friends, are our Australian friends contributing to the right policies in order to deal with refugees and, and migrants? Are, are we compliance in full with our part of SDGs? I have some doubts. And in any case, if we are not solving this, you know, then we will not be able to fully deploy our, let's say, potentiality, reality, and money uh, in Africa, um, in Central America, um, in the South Pacific. Say that in this way, just to give an example of something in which I think that we have all the interest in supporting the work done in New York on the Global Compact on Migration, because it's the first time that we, will can, we are able to tell a story about migration as a global issue and not just a bilateral from, for the richest and facing the poorest, uh, the Europeans, the Americans, the Australians, and maybe tomorrow the Chinese. Thanks. Stefano, Stefano. Okay, last, last question, last uh, inconvenient question for you. When you look at a crystal ball, anyone have a crystal ball? Give it to Stefano. But if you were to see and if you were to say, Today we're at this point and the SDG agenda 2030. How confident are you now that we, with all our words, all our promises, all our rhetoric, are going to be actually able to coordinate, bring everything together and do the deed? Frankly? Well, I mean, um, I am an optimist by nature and by choice. <laughs> Therefore, I think that it always, I mean, when there are difficulties uh, to think negative is not helpful. <laughs> we have to try to keep it open. I mean, I think that we have a huge opportunity and uh, the window of opportunity will not be open forever. Eh? But we have a huge opportunity to build uh, a world which is more inclusive. Uh, and therefore, this is for ruling class being a bit more 
right wing, a bit left wing, I mean, it doesn't matter, but which are caring about our common future. There is an agenda there. That's the reason why I'm insisting all the time on the fact that we have to be holistic, that we have not to be driven by old models, because if we miss this, we already see temptation of doing differently. You can call it unilateralism. You can call it uh, racism. You can call it model which is... Uh, Let's say, distributing a bit of wealth in exchange of a new modern slavery. I mean, they're already there, as I'm saying. I think that the world window opportunity, which is, which is big, and the consensus around this is huge and must be, uh, uh, let's say, pushed push forward. But the window of opportunity could also close, because if this ungovernance, let's say, of the global issues will last for the next five, six, ten years and turns to be the rule of the game, then uh, even me, maybe I could start being a bit pessimistic. So. No, no, you won't. No, you won't. I think for the EDDs, I mean, 8,000 people, committed people, committed organizations, us here, 30 or so, also having new ideas. I think we are at a kind of a defining moment, turning point. I'm an optimist. We are living in a world of disruption and chaos and disorder, but I think within that disorder, there's also a moment of opportunity crisis uh, equals opportunity, as our Chinese friends say. And I think this is a moment where all of us really are rethinking, redesigning, you know, and, and asking ourselves some very challenging questions. And thank you all of you for actually doing that. Not just the impulse speakers, but all of you for really challenging ourselves about what we can do together. I mean, you know, we've talked about the private sector and uh, public-private partnerships, but the state, the governments cannot abdicate their key role as well as creating the enabling environment. We've talked about civil society, private sector, women. And I'm, you know, I have to say, as, as a woman, I am so grateful for this moment, uh, hashtag me too perhaps, but also going much beyond that, she is we uh, as well, that we are actually now focusing on things that we should have, but this is the moment we're doing so. So in a, in a sense, you know, disruption means opportunity. No magic formulas, you're right, Stefano, no magic formulas, but also working together, co-operating, but also co-working. And I have to say thank you very much indeed for all of you uh, coming here and participating. Thank you to my colleagues for sitting here and listening, listening also patiently. Everything will come out. We will have our recommendations. We will have our event report. And we are contributing as much as we can to a changing world order. Uh, and see you all tomorrow at the EDDs. Thank you. Thank you.